Well, friends, what comes to mind when you hear the word obedience? Obedience. Parents, what comes to mind when you hear the word obedience? Children, what comes to mind when you hear the word obedience? Would you categorize yourself as a person of obedience? Would you say that you obey? Obey who? Your boss? Your parents? Your pastors? Your government? Your God? Friends, as you know well as I, that obedience is not a popular topic in our world today. In fact, if you ask most, they might take up the line from Shakespeare's Hamlet, this above all, to thine own self be true. Meaning, at the end of the day, the only one that you must obey is you and whatever your truth might be. But does Shakespeare square up with what we find in our Bibles? Oftentimes he doesn't, and especially here. Does obedience of our hearts always flow naturally with the will and the ways of the God of the universe? And if there is a God, and if he is all-powerful, and if he is all-perfect, and if this God has purchased us back from the depths of our sin and our wretchedness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, if all of that is true, what if obeying him then and following him meant certain difficulty? What if obeying God were hard? What if it meant certain harm, certain loss and pain, certain ridicule and hate? Would you obey him then? Today, as we continue our journey with the early church in the book of Acts, we are pressed with these questions. As we see Jesus' early followers continually pressed for being witnesses to who he is. And friends, as we have been traveling through the chapters of this book, we find that that pressure is growing and growing and growing. And so far we've seen God do amazing things in and through the apostles in particular. Those 12 men, you remember they were specifically chosen, called to be witnesses in Jerusalem, and then moving out to the ends of the earth. They've healed people. They've spoken in foreign dialects that they did not know. And what have they spoken of? They have proclaimed that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified by the Romans with the encouragement of the Jewish leaders of the day, this Jesus, they say over and over again, this Jesus whom you crucified was raised from the dead so that all who repent and come to him may have eternal life. And this message... It's been received by so many as it continues to be received in our own day by thousands upon thousands. They've left their former religion of Judaism to find hope in their father's great Messiah, the fulfillment of everything the Jewish religion in the Old Testament has told of. But this message, it hasn't always been received with joy and gladness, has it? 
No, as we saw a few weeks ago with the healing of that lame man, the Jewish leaders, those who, who were the same ones who killed Jesus, they charged Peter and John specifically to never teach or speak under the authority of the name of this Jesus. To be silent about who he is and, and what he has done for us. They were commanded to be quiet, commanded to close up shop. And what was their response? Would they obey these men? Or would they obey the command of Jesus himself? As we'll see in our text today, the command continues to go, stand, and speak. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts 5, picking up in verse 12. Acts 5, 12. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab the one there in front of you and the seat back in front of you and turn with me to Acts 5. It's on page 859. 859. If you're new to the Bible, once you get to 859, just look for that little number 12. That's where I'll begin reading here in a moment. And friends, since today is a, is a longer passage, I'm just going to read the for, first portion of Acts 5, uh, verses 12 through 18. And so as I do, let me invite you to stand out of the honor of the reading of God's Word. And this is God's Word for us today from Acts 5, beginning in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So we see here, we see that the ministry of the apostles certainly has not stopped. Even though they were told to do so, they have kept going. And it has become a boiling point for the religious leaders. It's close at hand. So as we work our way through this text this morning, we're going to see really three pairs emerge in each section of this. And I want to use those for my points. So if you want to write these down, kind of give you a, a, a road map for where we're going to go in the sermon. Here's a shape of this morning's sermon. First thing we see in the passage that I just read, we see mighty acts and multitude. Mighty acts and multitudes. We see that in verses 12 through 16. The second thing we're going to see is restrained and released. Restrained and released. We see that in verses 17 through 32. And then finally we're going to see advice and affliction. Advice and affliction. We see that in verses 33 through 42. Mighty acts and multitudes. Restrained and released. Advice and affliction. And as we walk through each of these, my prayer for us today is that God would so enliven our love and devotion to Him, as we see that in the Apostles' life, that, that, that He would enliven our love and our devotion to Him, that our joy in being witnesses for Him would far outweigh any suffering, ridicule, or hate that may come upon us. I think that is the main thrust of this text. So let's dive in by looking back at the text I just read, 
considering those mighty acts and multitudes in 12 through 16. In verse 12, you see back there, it tells us, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together, it says there, in Solomon's portico. We find them back here at this place, Solomon's portico. Portico is is another word for, for a big porch. It was a big porch that was built by Solomon, at least from historical point of view. Traditionally it was. And, and just like in chapter 3, they're there. They're really, they're there every day since this ministry has gotten started. And this portico, this giant porch, was a regular place of meeting for the early Christians in Jerusalem. It's, it says there that they were all together. We find this is one of the places where they were regularly gathering. Now why though? Why are they getting together on the front porch? Well, we're told in these early chapters that they were gathering to worship, really. To pray together and to hear the teaching of the apostles. Two marks of Christian gatherings from the very earliest account of the church is this. That they gathered to pray and they gathered to hear teaching about God's word through the apostles. Eventually they would add singing, they would add baptisms and the Lord's Supper and using that time also to gather support for the ministry financially. From the very beginning, the primary regular corporate life of the church was characterized by them assembling together and assembling around the teaching of the apostles and the lifting up of prayers to God. They did it even though the religious leaders and the authorities did not want them to. They gathered. So we still take this up to this day. Essential to being a church. The word church is the, we get from the Greek word ecclesia, which literally means gathering. Essential to being a gathering is gathering. I know, rocket science, right? And so they were together, and we are together today, united as one body around prayer and the word. We're reminded about this early gathering back in chapter 4 in verses 29 and 30 where we find the foundation of what's going on here. It says there that they prayed. And this is what they prayed. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Friends, do not wonder why this is happening in chapter 5. They prayed that it would. They had corporately gone to God and asked Him to do these very things for the name and the reputation of Jesus Christ. It's exactly what God has done. Friends, may our prayers be so bold. We saw it begin last week with the strict judgment of Ananias and Sapphira as God brought death upon them both, thwarting the plans of Satan to cause division in the unity of the church through their idolatry and their greed and their dishonesty. But now we find it's continuing. In verse 13 of today's passage, that the fear we were told that came over the church and the watching world has had an effect. Look back, it says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. The them here is the apostles. The apostles are there doing mighty works as they are proclaiming and displaying literally through healing, through mighty signs and wonders, displaying that this Jesus 
is who He says He is, and they stand alone. Why? It flows naturally that it's because of God's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira that there was both fear among those inside and outside the church as well as this desire to be joined. They, they were intrigued by what was going on. Hey, isn't that interesting? Both fear and desire mixed together. I know this is true of my own heart often in my relationship with God. I know it's been true for many of you in your own stories of coming to trust in Jesus himself. This is the, there's this desire to know God, to know Jesus, and to follow him. There's a desire, while at the same time there's a fear, an uncertainty. Because you know that he is God. And that coming to him will require something of you. In fact, it will require all of you. And this is exactly what we see the people of this day wrestling with. In light of the judgment of this couple in the previous chapter, the teaching of the apostles, the life that is being proclaimed through them, there is a desire for the people to know more, but a fear of what may happen to them. What was alarming and causing some to keep themselves at a distance was appealing to others. And friends, we should expect much of the same in our own time as it has been throughout the ages that God in His glory and splendor will cause some to come with fear and trembling but to come nonetheless to find hope and salvation. But at the same time, on the other hand, it will cause others to keep Him at a distance, to ignore Him, to hate Him, and to run as far as they can from Him. This is what we see to begin to emerge here in these two ways to live, these two paths that we can walk down. We see what we will find out on that final day that there really only are two kinds of people in this world. Those who fear God because they see His awesomeness and His glory and His beauty and His mercy in Christ. And those who fear God because they know the judgment and condemnation that is coming upon them. Luke continues here as he highlights over and over in his gospel. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. More than any other gospel writer, writer in the New Testament, Luke highlights the inclusivity of the gospel here. Both men and women. The message of the gospel, Luke is saying, is hope for all people. We already know that all people need the gospel. We just saw condemnation, not just of Ananias, but also of his wife Sapphira. So surely if condemnation for sin is held out for women, then surely the gospel must be held out for them too. Doesn't this give us hope in our own proclamation to all people? And you see again this effect of all of these people in verse 14. More than ever, believers are being added to the Lord. Male and female, young and old, rich and poor, slave or free. See, friends, they weren't added to the movement. Do you notice that? They weren't added to some church role. you see that? They were added to the Lord. That is, they, to use Jesus' own language, 
They became branches on the vine of Jesus Christ. They became members of the body to which Christ is the head. We see that God's work among the apostles is leading them to come and know and trust Jesus Christ as their Savior and then be joined to the people. It's important to note that they first believed in the Lord and then were added to the multitude, to the church, rather than the reverse, as some have proposed. That being a part of the covenant community can come through natural birth. We don't see any measure of that here. No, friends, what we see here is just the opposite. Even in the early church, that we belong to the church of Christ because we first belong to Christ. So sorry for you Presbyterian sympathizers <laughs> or Catholic sympathizers. Now maybe you're here today and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. Or maybe you grew up in the church and, and you've been walking away from God for many, many years. I want you to hear me say this. What we find here calling to you today is not primarily the church. We're not trying to sell you luggage or a new set of steak knives. What we are calling you to, what the Bible is calling you to, is to look to Christ for salvation. To turn from your sin and to turn to Christ, not to the church, first and foremost to deny the world and, and all its trappings and all its false promises for life and to look to the only one who can truly give you hope and joy and peace and meaning because he is the only one who can truly reconcile you as a sinner to a holy and pure God. This is where you must first find yourself joined to then comes the community of believers to walk through this life with you. Now, while the entire early church is marked by having God among them through the Holy Spirit, they also recognize here that Peter is, is a bit of a point man, right? That he's, he's a bit of the de facto leader at this point. And maybe it's because he decided to stand up and preach there at the very beginning, but he's kind of risen to the top. That Peter in particular is recognized as a man of God, and people respected that so much that they were convinced. They were convinced here that the, that the power of God would heal their bodies through Peter. So much so that they, we have this odd picture in verses 15 and 16 where they're carrying the sick out into the streets so that even as Peter walks by in the heat of the sun, that a shadow may be cast over them. They sense the presence of God in this man so much that they want to receive the benefits of it. It, it, it reminds us of the woman who, who had bled for 12 years and she's weaving her way through the crowd just so she can get close enough to Jesus to just touch the edge of his garment. That if she just reaches out and grabs the hem of her garment, she may be healed. She doesn't want to necessarily talk to him or be with him. She just wants to be healed. And it seems to be the same situation here. But the question remains, I'm assuming in some of your minds, it does as I come to this text, why is this happening? What is the point of all of this? Why did God put this in the Bible? Couldn't it have just happened and he left it out and then it wouldn't be so confusing for the rest of us of why, why we're not laying people out in cots so that pastors and church leaders can come by and cast their shadows on people and heal them? What is all of this? What are we supposed to do in today's world with such a thing? 
Is it just because the apostles, so the apostles can do greater things than Jesus? Is it because they are all powerful too? Well, of course not. This is not mighty works done by the apostles and the strength of the apostles for the apostles' sake. This is not the apostles' world tour featuring Peter, James, and John and all the gang. And what we find is that these miracles and wonders and signs are always done with an end in mind. There is something they are done to attain. There is a purpose for them. There is always done for some other end. And we saw this last week with Ananias and Sapphira. And though I realize it was a gruesome and startling picture, I hope at least in your heart you can admit that it was some kind of sign and wonder. That people would be speaking and then just drop dead in the judgment of God, a husband and a wife, three hours apart. It is not coincidence. It was a sign and wonder. But even so, their deaths were not merely God's hand of judgment for falsehood. There was a purpose. They were done with an end in mind for those who saw and heard of it. We saw that in 5.11 last week, right? You can look right back up there. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That was why it happened. But what here? What of these mighty signs being done by the apostles? What of Peter's savory shadow? What's the end being achieved here? Well, to put it shortly, it's the same end of the miracles that Jesus also performed to display the breaking in of the kingdom of God and to further spread the gospel itself. You see that. The miracles always point back to the message. The miracles are not done in and of themselves for some grand magic show for the Holy Spirit, but the miracles always point back to the message. The mighty acts may bring the multitudes, but it is the hope of Jesus Christ for eternal life that enjoins them to the Lord. The gospel advancement is the end in mind. Which begs the question for you, why? Why don't we see such amazing things among ourselves today? And why, when we do see it on television or the YouTube, does it leave us with such uneasy feelings in many of our souls? Are such things still happening today? And what would you do, I do, if, if they happened here? Well, friends, I may have just asked you a lot of questions that I don't have time to answer and wade into today. But I will say this. The mighty acts performed here just didn't just fall out of the sky. I want you to see that. The main thing I want you to see from these mighty acts is that they didn't just fall out of the sky at random. They were preceded by something. We saw it back in chapter 4 earlier, they were preceded by intense corporate prayer. By intense corporate prayer. And they always led to people glorifying Jesus and not man. What does that mean? That means that if you're the type of person who desires signs and wonders, perhaps the best place to start is on your knees. If you are the kind of person that wants to see God move in mighty ways, the first question to ask yourself is, are you praying toward that end? And if you desire to see such great thing for seeing them's sake, then perhaps we must first pray that God would tune our hearts to His heart 
of seeing the name of Jesus proclaimed to the ends of the earth. At the same time, we should also prepare for the blowback. As we get into the text now, consider point two, that's exactly what we see. You can make the argument here that the Holy Spirit pours out these signs and wonders, these mighty healings, for this reason right here. Let's look back at verses 17 through 32 and see the apostles restrained and released. Looking back at verses 17 and 18, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. They didn't consider them good enough for the private prison, I guess. They put them in the public prison. The problem for the apostles is no longer now just healing some lame beggar outside the temple, this one guy. But it's now progressed, and there are multitudes, there are many people being healed, and there are multitudes are coming because the, the apostles are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this now presents the bigger problem. The bigger problem is not the healing, as now it's becoming more and more a movement of people proclaiming the gospel truth. It's quickly transitioning, and we're going to see this in the weeks to come, with just the preaching of the gospel truth. The signs and wonders, they happen from time to time. But what keeps getting God's people in hot water is Jesus and talking about him. We see them arrested. Literally, they laid hands on them and threw them into prison. So if you go back and look at this whole scene, you see three things landed them there. The signs and the wonders are certainly one. But the other two was one, they were preaching Jesus as the resurrected Messiah. And this is why Luke mentions the Sadducees. They were the religious leaders who did not believe in the resurrection. And so they're continuing to preach this resurrected Christ. And two, earlier they had already been prohibited from doing this. Now they've disobeyed. They've disobeyed the authorities. They've continued their outlawed preaching. And it has produced jealousy. And not a small amount. Do you see that? The text says that they were filled with jealousy. They were overflowing. Not just put off by it, but filled with a desirous rage. An intense hatred because the apostles have something that the religious leaders do not. What was it? The very message of life and hope and joy. And it was imparting it to the people. The multitudes are coming to the apostles with excitement, with adoration in ways that had long been gone for the religious leaders of the day. The jealousy of success of the church. A jealousy. Here's a good time for us just to stop and think about it for a second. How are we doing with it ourselves? Are we tempted to this type of jealousy? I mean, it's worth considering when God's Word shows us how heinous it is, right? And initially, we're tempted to say, well, of course not. There's no way that I would have been like these leaders who, who killed Jesus and who threw the apostles in jail, who ended up beating them and, and martyring them. I would never have that kind of jealousy. But friends, when the text says that they're filled with jealousy, does it take your mind very much work to think of what jealousy actually is? to have a good definition of it in your own heart? It's not hard for us to define, is it? We know it all too well. Someone else gets the attention that we crave. If someone else gets the job promotion, not demotion, the job promotion that we think we deserve. 
Another brother or sister gets to play with that toy that we've wanted. Someone else's child in the church receives compliments and ours does not. Someone else finds the spouse that they've been looking for while we must remain single. Jealousy isn't that hard to find, is it? It's important for us to see here that we are prone to having this kind of jealousy in our own hearts. And we are most prone to it in the context of the local church. But the design for us, as verse 12 has already said, is to be all together. This is where Satan would love to threaten to undo us. And many churches have been torn asunder because of jealousy in the church. The authorities here now, out of their own jealous rage, seek to do that very thing. They throw them in jail, hoping to silence them and hoping to end this movement. But the problem with that is that these apostles are not on a personal mission. This is, I love this part. They're on God's mission. They're on God's mission. And as we'll see over and over in this book, God's mission isn't easily thrown off. We saw this past week in Bible study. It doesn't even matter if a snake comes out of the fire and grabs onto your hand. It's not going to stop God from completing his mission. You're picking up in verse 19. Look there. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out saying, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Their efforts again to silence the apostles prove powerless when the angel shows up and leads them freely through the prison gates. God commands them to go, to stand, and to speak in the temple. The very thing that the Sanhedrin had forbidden. It's the very thing that they said, don't do this. The angel shows up and says, God send me to let you out, to rescue you from these prison gates, and go and do that very thing. What an experience. You have to think, from the apostles' standpoint, when they're thrown into the prison, they're like, okay, here we go again. Here we go again. This time it's not just Peter and John, but but it's all 12 of us. Here we go. We've messed up too much. We ran our mouths too much, and now we have failed at God's mission. We've really let Jesus down, I bet. It's going to be another kangaroo court. We're going to be stuck in here. They're going to kill us. We already messed up Jesus' mission. But now, in the darkness of the night, comes God working to rescue them, building up the very confidence of the apostles. You think it was hard for them to obey here? Of course not. An angel came and let them out. And he gives them a new command, not to silence like the Jews commanded, but to speak all the more. They're commanded to go, speak, and not just anything, but all the words of this life. Did you, did you catch that phrase? Interesting phrase. What is this life? In the ESV, the English Standard Version that I'm preaching from, the word life is capitalized. Is it, is it capitalized in your own Bible? Just underline it. Even if it's a pew Bible, underline it. What's that about? Well, thus far, we've heard Jesus described as the way. And now we're seeing this message of salvation described as the life. Sound familiar? Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And here we find Luke is highlighting the center of their message here. 
that Jesus is the very essence of what we proclaim. We don't proclaim a philosophy. We don't proclaim a set of rules or a secret formula to happiness. The man is the message. He, Jesus, this Jesus is the very essence of what we believe and who we are. This is the message that the apostles are commanded now to again take up. Taking it to the temple. I mean, it, it, it's so interesting too. To the temple. The very centerpiece of Jewish life and Jewish worship. And they are go, to go and proclaim this life and this worship. Picking up then in verse 21. I want you to hear the uh, astonishment, the surprise, and the dumbfoundedness here. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel. So they get everybody together and they send to the prisons, let's bring the prisoners on in. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned empty-handed, and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Things have changed, haven't they? Who holds the power now? And just, just to make a note here, it is interesting that Luke highlights that the apostles were not required to be brought by force, but they came willingly. Why would they come so willingly? Because they knew who had the power. They knew that God could do whatever He wanted to. They need not be afraid. Now, I don't know if this happened to you, but a few years ago, Megan and I got sucked into the show Prison Break. I don't know if any of you have seen Prison Break. It's an awesome show. It's, I, it just intrigued me so much. I won't ruin it for you, but basically this, this guy gets put in prison and, and his brother commits these crimes so that he can get in prison with him and they're going to break out of prison. I, I, I'm not going to ruin it too much, but when they eventually do happened to break out of prison because the show would be really awful if it just ended and they never got out. Guess what they don't do? They don't hang around the prison anymore. They don't hang around the guard's house anymore. They don't stay in town even. They get lost. What do we find here? What do we find here? The apostles are released from prison by a God-sent angel and what are they told to do? To go back to the temple, to stand up and to speak the gospel all the more, not head for the heels, lay low for a little bit, keep quiet. No, they are told to go and finish what they started. Friends, I wonder how many of us are expecting God to bail us out of life and to bail us out of the hard things instead of expecting God to give us a life of boldness, walking in faith. That's precisely what we see the apostles doing. It surprises and confuses the leaders. It causes them to take a step back, but it doesn't hold them back. Look back at verse 17. Here we go. This is what they say. And when they had brought them in, 
They sat them before the council, and the high priest questioned them. Now, we don't know if this is Caiaphas, the high priest, who ended up crucifying Christ, or Annas, his father. But the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What's so interesting here is how well the religious leaders have gotten a hold of the apostles' teaching. They get it. They understand it, but they hate it. See, the Jewish leaders were called to lead Israel into righteousness, right? That's their job. Their job is to take the people before God, to lead the people in righteousness, but they instead stood guilty before God for slaying His chosen one. The have to say the name of Jesus. You see that there? He says, you keep preaching in this name. It's this man's blood you're trying to bring upon us. He's trying to distance himself from Jesus and Jesus' people as much as possible. This is your teaching. It's, not, it's yours. It's not ours. He's trying to get away from them and their Christ. But they're soon going to find that it's inescapable. Peter answers then in verse 29 the same thing that he says before. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Then he shows them the error and how they've missed the whole hope of the gospel. Despite their hatred of Christianity, this is so interesting, their hatred of Christianity, their hatred of Christ, their hatred of the apostles, despite it all, Peter emphasizes to these Jewish leaders who have just thrown him in prison, he emphasizes that Christianity is not a contradiction of Judaism, but a fulfillment of it. He says, the God of our fathers, our fathers, he's relating to them. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Oh, what is Peter doing here? Well, he first identifies with them, as I just pointed out, seeking to you find this common thread that connects them together. He wants them to see that they have crucified the one who is their only hope. Peter, knowing that it is God who has sent him on this mission, places a priority then on obeying God over everyone else. He realizes that he has been sent by God himself, and so he places, places priority on obeying God above everyone else. We must obey God. We must come and stand and speak. We must be about his work which helps us understand then the limits of civil obedience, does it not? Blind obedience to civil authorities is not the obligation of Scripture. However, we must at the same time meet all the requirements of the state that do not require disobedience to Christ. Because even in that obedience, in the end, it's ultimately for Christ's sake. We see this throughout Scripture, do we not? Consider the Hebrew midwives disobeying Pharaoh who told them to murder all the baby boys of Israel. But they couldn't do it. We must obey God. Daniel refusing to bow to the king. His three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refusing to bow and being thrown into the furnace. We must obey God rather than men. And their refusal to bow before the Jewish leaders here. Even the apostles avoided being unnecessarily offensive. Peter even accepts the charges. 
I think we would learn well here ourselves. The high priest says, you intend to bring this, blood, this man's blood upon us. How does Peter respond then with the very next words? You crucified him. Of course we intend to bring his blood upon you. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Peter says, you did that. It was you that murdered him. It was you that hung him on the tree. Even though Peter brings the accusation against them for crucifying the son, he also assures them that the one they crucified has been exalted to the place of authority as prince, as leader and savior. Because he is in that place of authority, he can grant forgiveness even to those who have killed him. Far from being a threat to the Jewish nation, Peter is announcing that Jesus is actually the great hope of Israel. He's announcing the same great hope to us. Friends, if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, this same hope is held out to all who would turn from their sin and turn to Christ. I would love to have conversation with you this morning about that afterwards. Understand that if Jesus can grant repentance and forgiveness to even those who killed him, he can grant it to the biggest wretch among us if we would only turn and repent. This is the message that we proclaim because it is the message that they proclaimed. How will you respond to it? We see how the leaders respond to it in the final portion of our passage this morning. Look at verses 33 through 42 and consider advice and affliction. Let me continue in verse 33. When they, meaning the religious leaders, heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The desire is now there. You, you find this in the Gospels with Jesus too. He's going back and forth with the religious leaders and they're obviously annoyed and they're trying to test him and press him and all these things. And eventually it says, and they desired to kill him. As it is with the master, so it is with the servants. The response of the Jews to the hope Peter is setting before them seems unimaginable, though. Intense anger with the intention of killing the apostles. The Greek word here means that they were cut to the quick. I don't know how many of you have cut your fingernails too short lately, but that's some pain. And that pain that they're feeling, that rage and that anger produces a desire to murder. A prideful rage fuels it. So we're going to see in a couple of weeks, you can't bottle up that rage. It's just going to keep growing. But do they carry it out here? Look back at verse 34 through 39. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, he's the one in the Bible with the closest to a name that you would find in Lord of the Rings. Let me just point that out. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held and honored by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Finally, some rational reasoning, right? 
Gamaliel, a mature and respected Pharisee, cautions. He cautions these political elites. He reminds them that the rebellions led by those who are supposed to be the only human authority will implode and collapse. These, these false messiahs that had shown up. But if God is authoring it, they will not be able to stop what is happening. He mentions a few case studies here. Theodos and Judas the Galilean. They're two guys that none of you have ever heard of because they never came to anything. They died. They stayed dead, and their followers died, and that was the end of it. But what are we to make of Gamaliel's advice here? It seems wise enough on the surface. But if we step back and consider what he's actually saying, we find that this worldly wisdom doesn't hold up in the face of the Son of God. It represents the heart and the attitude of many Jews even today. Gamaliel didn't really believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It's implicit in what he says. Or that he was raised from the dead. It's implicit in what he says. Or that salvation is offered through him or in his very deity. And so his appeal was not an appeal to the truth, but rather a default of indecision, this passive pragmatism. Gamaliel assumed that Jesus would prove to be a fraudulent imposter, just like the two examples he gives. He mentions here, so, so his counsel was mere worldly wisdom, waiting to, and staying safe and waiting to see and letting this thing just run its course. Let's do nothing, and that will keep us out of hot water with the people and keep these meddling followers out of our hair. But friends, this option, the Gamaliel option, is a non-option. And unfortunately, it is an option many today take, even those who claim to be followers of Christ. As God calls them to greater holiness and greater service for His sake, they would rather hold Him at arm's length and pay lip service to Him without allowing the gospel to penetrate deep into their hearts and allow their lives to reflect the love of Christ more and more. It's worth considering for ourselves. And we can start by simply asking the question, how much are you willing to lose for Christ? How much are you willing to lose for Christ? For Gamaliel, nothing for Jesus. I don't want to lose a night's sleep for this guy. Get him and his people off of my plate. But for the apostles, they were willing to lose it all. So the religious leaders take Gamaliel's worldly counsel, but before releasing the apostles, they beat them. We read, picking up in verse 39, so they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. These beatings, much like that of Christ that we heard read earlier, were intense. These beatings that took place during this time, regularly people would die from them. It was meant to be a serious lesson to offenders in an attempt to silence them. It has this connotation of filleting a fish, of beating and scourging and flogging, particularly on their backs with whips that had pieces of bone and metal and glass tied to the end of it. Traditionally, it was 39 times I wouldn't be surprised if they got a couple extra licks in now. We began as a command. What began as a command then turned into arrest and imprisonment has now become violence and affliction. 
cast upon those who would continue to say, we must obey God rather than men. Friends, are you surprised by this? Are you surprised that such a thing could take place? And will you be surprised if it happens to us in our own day? The reality of the fallenness of this world is here in all of its darkest hues. What is it? It is that to be opposed to Jesus is to be opposed to his people. And that opposition will bring affliction upon God's people, as it did for God's chosen Messiah. So how might we respond? How might we respond? I think there are really two options. The first one is we could, we, we could take the Gamaliel approach here. We could leave it alone. We could leave Jesus alone. We could leave his apostles and their teaching and this word alone. We could tuck it under our beds, hide it in our coffee cans, bury it in the backyard, and look as much like the world as we can, and maybe we'll skirt through. Or look one more time at the text at the end of chapter 5, picking up in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Friends, here are our apostles. Here are your apostles, arrested, mocked, and beaten, the fathers of our faith, gone before us. And how do they respond to these things? Is it by seeking self-preservation? Is it by hiding away? Is it by quieting down? No. They go away with two beautiful displays. What a way to end this text by meditating on them. First, they go rejoicing. They go rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Literally in the Greek, it's honored to be dishonored or joyful shame. They saw it as a grace to be disgraced. Why? Why? Why, if you are made fun of, persecuted, if you have laws passed against you, if you have family members who refuse to talk to you, if you have friends that walk away because they want nothing to do with you, why, if someday in God's providence we are beat and killed for following Jesus, why should we rejoice? Because we're worthy. It is assured to them and it is assured to us that we are, in fact, followers of God. How is it with us then? Do we consider our sorrows for following Christ as a cause to rejoice? Do we consider the blisters and the blood our faith produces as signs of his work in us? Do we labor to this end that we might be counted to suffer with our Savior? Do you want to know what will set the world on fire? Rejoicing sufferers. 
glorying in their shame, exulting in their pain, praising in their persecution. And what's more, they didn't just praise God. The second display is that they continued to proclaim to the people. And every day, in the temple, right there in the religious leader's face, in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Every day, they did not cease. What is this? This is obedience at all cost. This is simple obedience to God at the expense of everything else. And Christian, this is the call upon our own hearts today to go, to stand, and to speak at your job, in your classroom, among your family, in the courtroom, at the local watering hole, the gym, at the library, at the co-op, at the grocery store, at the ice cream shop. Wherever you may find yourselves, God has placed this call upon His people in the face of mocking and beating and hatred. Was it not Peter who many years later would write, Do not be surprised when fiery trials come among you. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, to proclaim that this Jesus, that this Jesus is the very one who has come to save. It may mean suffering and it may mean death, but it can also mean rejoicing. Are you willing to throw off the sin wrapped around your own heart to do it? Has the love of the Savior moved you to obey Him? no matter what. As the Puritan Richard Baxter said, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. Let us pray. Father, we ask, mighty God, we ask for your strength, for your sustaining work through the Spirit to carry us to sustain us, to equip us, that we may be people who stand in the face of ridicule, that we would be willing to be laughingstocks in our culture so that we may be worthy, counted worthy to suffer. God, strengthen us, equip us, keep us. Keep us from sin of laziness and apathy. Keep us, Lord, and grow us in this way that your kingdom may be displayed here and now. Do this for Jesus' name. Amen.